Hey my friends, welcome to Pixel Horror, video game podcast that each episode we're going to take a look at different games than the horror thing. So for our first episode, I thought there'd be no better game since look at the biggest one of them all. We're looking at Capcom's Resident Evil. A game which I'm sure just about everybody has heard of. This is one of the biggest franchises out there. So we're going to be breaking down different things from the gameplay and development to the enemies, weapons, characters, and finally we're going to be talking a little bit about the plot. So this is a spoiler-filled podcast. So just be warned that if you want to be left unspoiled, by all means go check this game out now and come back and listen a little bit later. The Resident Evil was developed and published by Capcom in March 1996 for the PlayStation with the version for Windows released later that year in December and the following year for the Sega Saturn in July. It's a survival horror third-person game which means it tends to be more of a third-person shooter with a little bit of very light puzzle solving mechanics. At the time of its release, Capcom really saw this game as being not particularly popular. They were kind of estimating selling maybe 200,000 copies or so. But, much to their astonishment, this game actually went on to sell millions and millions of copies, becoming one of the PlayStation's number one selling games of all time. Upon its release, it was praised a great deal for its graphics, gameplay, and atmosphere. By the end of 1997, it has sold a total of 4 million copies, far exceeding their initial expectations. Today, it is often being cited as one of the greatest games of all times. Not to mention, it also created a whole franchise, includes games, comics, books, even a million dollar movie series. So let's look a little bit into the gameplay and development of Resident Evil. So it originally started being developed in 1993, and Capcom had envisioned this game as being a remake for the SNES of another game they had made several years earlier called Sweet Home. If you haven't heard of Sweet Home, don't worry, not a lot of people have. It was a game that was released only for Japan and never really made its way anywhere else in any substantial way. Uh, it is actually a RPG that's featuring very different is actually a RPG that features different horror mechanics, many of which would actually go on to be included in Resident Evil. So when they started making this game, they decided they needed to pick a very special person to actually direct it. So instead of picking somebody that had some big true love of horror, they decided to go the opposite route. They picked a young man named Shinji Mikami, and they picked Shinji because he absolutely did not like horror or being scared. And they felt, hey, who else would know I was going to truly be scared than someone that disliked being scared. So, many of the mechanics from Sweet Home did actually make their way into Resident Evil, from the door opening load screens, the multiple endings, and even the individual character items that characters could have. But unfortunately for Capcom, the license for Sweet Home had already expired for them. So they had to kind of create something a little new. 
So earlier in the game's development, they originally wanted this game to be a more of a first-person type shooter, making it look a little more like, say, Doom. But unfortunately, due to some issues they had with the engine, they couldn't quite get the first-person perspective to really play nicely with the backgrounds that they decided to make as they decided to use the pre-rendered backgrounds that were slowly starting to come a little more, more popular. So in order to work around this little issue they were having, trying to get this game to work in a first-person perspective, Shinji Mikami came up with some inspiration by playing a game called Alone in the Dark, which is an American horror PC game, and decided to make the shift to a third-person perspective. They found it worked a lot better with those pre-rendered backgrounds. So early in development in this game, it also planned for this to be a multiplayer shooter. It was going to feature up to four playable characters. But they couldn't quite get the multiplayer aspects to work properly. They ended up pulling back and they decided to settle on being able to choose between two different characters. You choose between Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine, which each character featuring slightly different story elements as well as gameplay throughout the mansion and how you can approach it. So the game features what is now known as tank controls. Your character moves forward when you push up on the D-pad, walk backwards by pushing back, and you rotate them to turn them by pushing left and right, making running through the environments not the easiest of concepts to do, but it kind of got the work done just when you ran from different screen to different screen due to the fixed camera angles, could sometimes leave you running off into some very odd particular directions. So now for the inventory in this game, you have a very limited carrying capacity. Chris Redfield can only carry six items, and Jill can carry up to eight. And to hold any extra items, you have to navigate through special safe rooms where you can find some storage boxes that will allow you to hold your items. So anytime you had to run out to the mansion, you did have to make some very very big choices about what you were going to bring. And throughout the and to fight the enemies in this game, you do get various different types of weapons, but you do have limited ammunition for each one, as well as limited healing items. You want to be careful about where you use your ammo at and getting hits, as it was possible to put yourself in a fairly no-win situation. And also to make the game feel a little more difficult, there is actually a limited number of times you can save this game. In order to save, you are going to have to find a consumable item called an ink ribbon, which can only be used at typewriters can be found in certain rooms throughout the house. And also to tell the backstory of the game, you will find different documents found throughout the mansion, as well as the different areas you go to. And it kind of gives you a little bit of history about what happened in the days leading up to the famous breakout. So over the years, the game has seen a few different re-releases, starting with a director's cut, which was released in September of 1997, which included a new arranged version that moved around many of the items as well as the enemies in the house. It also featured a new beginner's mode, which made the enemies easier to kill, as well as doubled the amount of ammunition found in the game. Also featuring new clothing options for the characters, 
as well as a random shot and getting a critical hit with the handgun, which could actually kill a zombie in one shot by popping their head. And for the American version of the game, it also restored the auto-aim function, a feature that was taken out on the initial release for the game due to the American side of Capcom wanting the game to be much more rental store friendly, making it more challenging, and often requiring the game to be rented several times for it to be completed. The third version of the game was also released in August of 1998, and it featured support for Sony's new DualShock controller, as well as new vibration features. This is the version you're often going to find nowadays if you actually go out and try and look for this game. So a fourth version of the game was originally intended to be released was actually being created for Nintendo's Game Boy. But unfortunately, due to hardware limitations, Capcom couldn't get the game to quite function right. And about 90% of the way into its development, they kind of pulled the plug on it. But eventually, several years later, in January 2006, we were able to get a new version of it, called Resident Evil Deadly Science, released for Nintendo's DS. Then you use the top screen to show off your map, health, and remaining ammunition. And you use the bottom screen to actually show the game's action. As well as gave the game some new puzzle options utilizing the system's touchscreen's capabilities. So originally released under the name of Biohazard in Japan. Due to some copyright issues with the name being held by a different game at the time over in America. And it come up with a new name. The little intercompany contest was held, and the name Resident Evil was chosen as the winner, and how it came to be known as it is today. But the American version didn't just feature a brand new game. The original one actually featured quite a few changes to the game. One which we already talked about, which was the auto-aim function being disabled, which made the game significantly more difficult as you had manually aim at all enemies, and in the game featuring well-fixed camera angles and you couldn't always see where those enemies are, it could make it quite brutal at times. It also reduced the amount of anchor ribbons that you could find throughout the game, severely limiting the amount of saves you could do, as well as had the FMV scenes that were recorded for the beginning of the game heavily censored as they found that American audiences didn't think could quite handle the gore. So next, let's talk about the core element to any good horror game are enemies. So our primary enemies that we're going to be meeting throughout this game are going to be the zombies. Heavily inspired by the George A. Romero zombies, they're often going to be slow, not particularly smart, and as long as you have some distance between you, you're generally going to be pretty safe. So for our next enemy that we're going to see the most throughout the mansion is our zombified dogs. The Umbrella likes to call the Cerberus. These are rather horrifying and decaying animals. While not quite as strong as the zombies, they are quite fast. And in numbers, can be quite dangerous, especially if they get around you. After the dogs, we also witness more ordinary looking animals, even though they're a little, a little bit changed. From various snakes, which, while not particularly deadly, can poison you very easily. And some rather, rather unfriendly bees. We get to meet some rather horrifying giant spiders. 
big tarantula looking things that are rather particularly hairy. And even if you do gun them down, you want to be a little careful because, yeah, you don't want to be sworn by the bunch of little babies that often explode from them. So after our more ordinary animal type enemies, we start to encounter our more biological weapons. The true things that Umbrella is out to make. Starting with the Hunter, which is a kind of humanoid reptilian hybrid, almost looking like a kind of toad thing on its back legs, with some rather, rather deadly claws. And then finally we see the Chimeras, which are kind of a humanoid fly hybrids. They tend to crawl around the walls of the rock a lot, and they have a whole lot of arms, each tipped with a deadly blade. And then we get various bosses throughout the games. Well, not particularly surprising. These are just ordinary looking animals. Just particularly large versions of them. From the snakes, spiders, some sharks, even just a plant. Yeah, this game's, while well, got some great enemies as far as the normal enemies, the bosses tend to leave a little bit to be desired. But we do make that all up in... The game's final boss. So the final boss of the game is the now infamous Tyrant. An enemy that has seen returned in several other other games is Umbrella's ultimate biological weapon, designed to be intelligent with superhuman abilities, a creature that will not go down with a few mere shots. Let's talk about our weapons. An important item in any, any survival horror game. Starting with the knife. Throw the knife away. Throw it. Just get rid of it. But unfortunately you can't. So just tuck it away in the back of the storage safe. So our first weapon that every character starts with is the knife. Is the knife good? Oh no, no. It's horrible. It's horrible. Put that away in the storage box the first chance you get and never pull it back. While some people have been known to play playthroughs using only knife to complete the game that's for only the most bravest and perhaps foolish souls the knife has such poor range that time for you to hit anything they're pretty much going to be grabbing you do not use this thing the next up we have an iconic weapon for just about any third person or any type of shooter game really we have the pistol while not particularly powerful does have the most plentiful ammo of any weapon in the game. It's going to be one of your go-to weapons, especially for taking out dogs and those horrible zombies. Next up, we have the shotgun. One of the favorite weapons to any, any great horror game. While it's not very powerful at distances, at short ranges, this thing can be absolutely devastating. In fact, aiming up at the zombie's head just before they can get you is a great way to ensure those beautiful critical hits. We get to watch the zombie's head explode everywhere. It is beautiful. This is also going to be one of your go-to weapons for some of the later enemies, such as those hunters and those chimeras. Now next up, we have a couple of character-specific weapons. Let's start with Chris's flamethrower. Poor Chris. He definitely got the short straw on this one. Do not use the flamethrower. 
is a very short range, not particularly powerful, and does damage over time. So yeah, it's put this thing away. The only particular plot you might want to use it is that it's actually very powerful on the giant spider boss you meet later in the game. Other than that, yeah, it, poor, poor Chris. Jill, on the other hand, was definitely favored, and she obtains the Grenade Launcher, also known as the Bazooka, depending on which version of the game you're looking at. This weapon can hold a lot, a lot of ammo, uses three different types of shell, explosives, the acid round, which are great for using on those hunters, and the fire rounds, or flame rounds, if you want to bring a little light to your enemies. This is going to be one of your best weapons in the game, and you want to save it for all your big bosses or emergency situations. So next up we have the Magnum. My favorite weapon of many, many players. While this thing doesn't have a particular lot of rounds throughout the game, is fine because this thing does a lot, a lot of damage. We'll take down all your in smaller enemies just one shot, and it can actually help you mow down a lot of boss fights and those tougher enemies in just a few rounds. So finally, we have the rocket launcher. While you can only find the rocket launcher during the last battle of the game, it is far worth waiting for it because this thing is massively powerful. So now let's talk about our various characters in Resident Evil. So now let's talk about our characters. Starting with Chris Redfield, a former U.S. Air Force pilot and the first player character you could choose to play as. If you like to play your game on a little bit of a harder mode, definitely pick Chris. While he's a little bit more resistant to damage, his limited inventory, Lack of lockpick means you're going to have to find a lot more keys throughout the house. As well as not being able to get the grenade launcher makes things quite a bit tougher for him. So next up we have my favorite character in Resident Evil, Jill Valentine. A former member of Delta Force, as well as an expert in weapons, explosives, and even lockpicking. If you want the easier to play through in Resident Evil, this is the character to go with. Not only does she start with the handgun, that lockpicking makes traversing the mansion a whole lot easier. The so next up we have Albert Wesker. He's the leader of the Stars Alpha team. And it seems like there's some mysterious stuff going on with him. As he seems to act very oddly throughout your time in the mansion. Next up we have our two partner characters. For our main characters. Jill Valentine as Barry Burton. Who's the team's weapon specialist and a family man. A rather gentle, friendly person who seems to always be there to help out Jill whenever she needs them. And then finally we have Rebecca Chambers, who's going to be Chris Redfield's partner. She's a Bravo Team rookie and medic, and one of the few, in fact, only remaining survivors of the Bravo Team. So poor Rebecca, first day, this is what she gets. Yeah, she's probably, probably rethinking that life decision. Alright guys, so now let's talk about the meat of the game. Let's talk about the plot. The game opens up on the outskirts of a midwestern town called Raccoon City on July 24th, 1998. After several bizarre murders have been reported in the forest and mountains surrounding the towns, 
local police department decides to send a special team called STARS, which stands for Special Tactics and Rescue Service, to go investigate what's been going on. So the STARS Bravo team is sent out first, only to quickly come up missing. Alpha is sent out to find them, but they quickly find the location of their crashed helicopter out in the middle of the woods. But while investigating the crash, they're quickly attacked by a pack of monstrous looking dogs. And one of the team members is going to be violently killed. Everybody else does the only smart thing and decides to hightail it back to the chopper. But unfortunately for them, the team's helicopter pilot, Brad Vickers, decides to take off and leave them behind. So let's talk about this for a moment. Of all the people in this group, Brad is going to be the safest person here. He is enclosed in a helicopter made out of metal and glass. Now granted, there are some doors on the side to keep the doors closed. This man's going to be pretty safe from any dangers. You're probably thinking to yourself, why would you just take off and leave all your team members behind like this? Well, I have a little bit of a theory. And it goes like this. So while Brad is just chilling out in his helicopter, everybody else is out doing all the real work, he's sitting here listening to the local radio. With a little bit of a journey coming off the air, an ad for everybody's favorite, favorite American restaurant, Arby's, comes on. Advertising its delicious, delicious roast beef sandwich. And thinking to himself, well, geez, all these guys are going to be wandering around out in the forest for quite a while, and I'm feeling a little hungry. But I don't think Brad took off because of anything horror or scarifying. I think Brad took off because he wanted a hot roast beef sandwich. So with Brad taking off into the unknown, you get sandwich, of course. The rest of the team is left standing out in the field. Now keep in mind, the pack of vicious dogs were just on top of them while they're all standing here, their jaws gate, looking at Brad taking off. But eventually they do come to their senses and start running off through the woods. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, all these people got to be in so much danger. What I'm thinking is, poor Chris. Let's look at everybody here. You have Jill Valentine. She's a little on the scrawny side. Not going to be much more than a little bit of a snack. She's probably not too much danger from these animals. Then we have Albert Wesker. A man so cool, he's wearing sunglasses at night. And with all the black he's wearing, well, he's wearing natural camouflage. And certainly they'll never see him. Then you're thinking, well, you know, Barry's a pretty big, meaty guy. Certainly they'd want to eat him. Ah, but I gotta tell you guys. If you ever paid attention in biology class, you know that red is nature's way of saying danger. And Barry is a ginger. So these dogs are going to look at him, though, that, hey, Barry means danger, and we should avoid him. But he is perfectly safe. Which leaves Chris... Our lone, big, meaty white guy. Just like a big chicken with a little bit of hair on top. 
Yeah, poor Chris. But fortunately, as they're running through the woods, they happen to come across an abandoned mansion. And they take shelter inside. Luckily, this place not quite so abandoned, as all the lights are still on. And for a place that seems to just be out in the middle of nowhere. They quickly notice that one of the group has come up missing. Be either Chris or Jill, depending on who you chose. So they decide to split up and explore this mysterious mansion, try and find a way out, as well as locate this missing team member. We quickly learn, though, that this seemingly abandoned mansion isn't quite as empty as it initially seemed. In the western hallways of the house, our player character discovers someone enjoying a little light midnight stack. Unfortunately, this little snack seems to be the Star's Bravo team member, Kenneth. And as we approach, this person that we've run across turns around, feeling that, yeah, they spent a little bit too much time out in some by the looks of it. So we run back to the main hall of the house to discover that everybody else is missing. So with more of our team members now missing, we decided to start exploring the eastern side of the house. And while walking through one of the outer hallways, we get one of the most iconic moments in all of gaming. And a moment that absolutely terrified me is a young child. While walking through one of the eastern hallways of the house, we get one of the most iconic moments in all of gaming. As we're just walking carefully, minding our own business, Cerberus comes bursting through the window right behind us. Any smart man, of course, goes running down the hall. As we turn the corner, yeah, we're not done yet. Another Cerberus breaks through the window right in front of us. Setting us one of the most horrifying moments in gaming, something that scared many, many people back in the day. As we escape deeper into the mansion, we start to find various notes throughout, which kind of gives us a little bit of backstory what's going on here. We come to find out this mansion was owned by the now famous Umbrella Pharmaceutical Corporation. And they've been using this mansion to conduct some secret research to the creation of various biological weapons. And one of their weapons, known as the T-Virus, which was being used to create the weapons, had gotten loose and affected the staff members that had been working there, slowly killing them, turning them into those mindless reanimated zombies that we've been killing all along. While looking for various metals which we need in order to open up a way from the back side of the house, we come across our first real boss in the game. We find the Yawn. A big giant snake, highly poisonous one at that, that really, really terrified me as a young kid because I did not like snakes. I did not like this thing at all. Fortunately, smart players could actually know to just grab the nice little metal in the room and hightail it. Unfortunately, if you didn't manage to dodge the snake, you did come out of this room poisoned, but luckily for you, you do get rescued by one of Bravo Team's members, either Richard Aiken, who you helped save earlier from being poisoned himself, or you actually get a rare chance where you get to play as a different character. And if you're playing as Chris, you get a chance to actually fill the role of Rebecca Chambers. As you after finally be able to collect all the medals and unlock the back door of the house, we make our way through the garden area, where we find our way to a guardhouse. You're thinking, 
Well, certainly this has to be safer. It is a guardhouse, after all. You are horribly wrong. Because this is when we get to our first appearance of the great big giant spider. So, first time I walked into one of these rooms and saw one of these, I said, heck no. And turned around and immediately left. And unfortunately, yeah, there's some stuff you need in here or solve some puzzles. So after shotgunning my way and learning the hard way about killing big spiders makes hundreds of little spiders. So after killing all these spiders and being poisoned several times thanks to all the little babies, you're able to progress your way further into the guardhouse. You find some little laboratories underneath, housing some sharks, and even getting fired off some rather big bees. But not everything ends up being that easy. As you come to the final room of the guardhouse, you get to meet our next boss. Plant 42. A giant overgrown weed that likes to squeeze you to death. Well, let's throw a little bit of acid on you. Unfortunately for smart people that read through the notes and stuff, they knew the way that you could actually weaken the vi or weaken the plant, allowing you to kill it fairly easily, or if you're Jill, Barry will come in and just torch it and you get to do nothing. So with the final keys in your hand, you return back to the mansion, and a young me thought to myself, oh geez, this should be super easy, because I've killed practically every zombie in this place already, and there's probably just a few left, so this will be a nice walk through the park. Yeah, I was horribly, horribly wrong. After walking a few steps to the mansion, we are greeted with a wonderful, wonderful little cutscene of something running through this garden area very, very quickly, making its way to the back door of the house and doing something the enemies shouldn't be able to do. It opened the door. So, I'm a little curious the first time I see this. I turn around, walk down the hallway, where you are seeing for the first time one of the Resident Evil's most popular enemies, the Hunter. A giant, kind of skelly looking frog thing that immediately killed me by jumping at me and cutting my head off. Yeah. So after re-waking away back to the mansion after a quick load, this time I decided to just leave this guy behind just to go into the next room, heading off toward the little save room we meet early, early in the game, just to be beheaded once again. Turns out there's going to be a lot of these guys. So on my third playthrough, I ran through once again, ran toward the save room, and pulled out my pistol. And after my third beheading, I decided it's time to stop playing and finally use the big guns. So pulling out your shotgun, you're going to fight your way through the mansion exploring these last few rooms. And then finally obtaining the items that you need in order to make your way down into the secret, secret lab in beneath the whole compound. But while making our way through the sewers that leads down to the secret lab, we finally meet Bravo Team's leader, Enrico, who's on death's door. Maybe he could be saved, if we're very lucky, and had a team medic, like Rebecca Chambers, who's been probably hiding back in the mansion this whole time. But we decided to split up. The so poor Enrico, even if he was going to make it, doesn't get to make it. 
Because as he tries to reveal that, there may have been a traitor among Star's team that set this whole thing up. Somebody from the darkness shoots Rico right in the chest, taking him down for good. Diving deeper into the sewers, we finally come across our next boss. Remember why I didn't like the giant spider? Well, guess what? There's even bigger giant spiders. Luckily for us, with our grenade launcher and some wonderful flame rounds, he actually goes down pretty, pretty quickly. Or if you're playing as Chris, this is going to be the one time that the flamethrower is worth anything. So with the giant, giant spider dead and the little babies that are running all over the place but left behind you in the room, hopefully forever, we finally find our way into the elevator that takes us down into the lab itself. Now in the lab, as we start making our way further down, thinking that, well, what could be even worse than a normal zombie? Well, the game decides to give us some naked zombies. They're a little bit tougher, and just for fun, can spit acid. Thank you, game. But luckily, they're not too tough. And we can fight our way further in, just so we can meet the real enemies that are in danger here, the chimeras. These fast little bug things that like to run across the ceiling and take your head off when you can't see them. Thanks to those wonderful, wonderful fixed third camera angles. But eventually after we get the power supply back on for the lab, work our way down into the core part of the lab. In the lab, we come across Wesker. And we discover that he's been working as a double agent for Umbrella the whole time. He's been the person that Rico was trying to warn us about. And that this whole incident was set up by him or for him to collect combat data and return it back to the company. But the only info being left that he needed to collect was that on the tyrant. Uh, which is um, Tyrant, Umbrella's ultimate biological weapon. Upon awakening the Tyrant, just like any teenager out there, it ignores what Wesker tells it and violently kills him, then turns our eyes on our hero. After winning the battle against the Tyrant, the self-destruct for the lab activates, and we're given a matter of minutes to escape from the lab, where the whole compound self-destructs in a giant explosion. Now here you do have a couple of choices. You could run straight for the exit and just not care about anybody else but yourself. Or if you collected certain items called the MOD disc and had activated them all throughout the lab, you could actually return back to the prison and save your missing team members. Now, whichever route you decide to choose to take, you'll eventually find yourself at the hell port with just minutes to spare on the clock. And making your way up, you're going to signal Brad Vickers, who's claiming this whole time over the various radio transmissions throughout the game, be flying around looking for you. Which I'm not so sure. I think he was just sitting in that Arby's parking lot. Because in a big giant forest, how do you miss a brightly lit up mansion? Whatever you say, Brad. But finally, Brad is actually here though, thankfully. Because we sit higher off our signal flare to him. The floor underneath us rips apart, and the tyrant returns once more. Using whatever resources you have left, which is hopefully some magnum and grenade launcher rounds, is if you're only down to your pistol and your knife, you're probably a little screwed. But take them down long enough and last long enough, 
Brad finally is actually helpful for the first time in this game. And he drops down the rocket launcher to you. A very beautiful weapon that explodes the tyrant in a big giant spray of gore and body parts. And with those final seconds, Brad's able to land and your player character and any people that manage to survive in the game gets to take off to the beautiful unknown. Now the game does feature multiple endings, which can vary depending on your actions throughout the game. The best endings will see your player character as well as their partner character, which will be either Rebecca or Barry, depending on who you chose as, as well as the missing team members from the beginning of the game escape together as the mansion is destroyed in the distance. However, if any of those characters don't survive until the end of the game, as you take off in your helicopter, the self-destruct for the mansion doesn't explode, and Tyrant, who you previously blew up into little, little bitty pieces, somehow managed to put himself back together and walks out into the forest. But unknown to many people, I think there was a, another ending that actually kind of got cut from this game. In this ending, as the helicopter flies off, Chris is sitting in the back of the helicopter, Jill resting her head gently on his shoulder as she falls asleep. Chris looks over at Barry as he's checking his gun, making sure it's reloaded, just in case any of these fools did get bit and didn't tell him. He wants to be prepared. But as Chris slowly looks to the left, seeing on the seat next to Barry is a bag of Arby's. And Chris starts to think to himself, when we got off this helicopter several hours ago, that bag of Arby's there, thus leaving the great mystery of the Arby's bag. Alright guys, so that is the plot to Resident Evil. So a few fun little facts for the game is that the Sega Saturn version actually featured a one-of-a-kind enemy that's only been seen once. That in the game's battle mode, you can actually fight an unlockable version of a zombified version of Wesker. So the game's infamously bad dialogue, which eventually won it an award from Genesis World Records for having the world's worst game dialogue ever, was actually results of those scenes being initially recorded in Japanese. But due to Shinji Mikami thinking that it didn't quite fit the game right and felt really lame, had the whole thing re-recorded featuring American-speaking voice actors and actors from there in Japan who reference scripts that they themselves had translated, but they weren't quite aware of how bad those translations had been. And finally, the first script for the 2002 Resident Evil movie was actually written by the godfather of the modern zombie movie as we know it, George A. Romero. And the movie is actually intended to be directed by him, but due to Capcom not liking his vision of keeping the movie very close to the original story of the game, they ended up parting ways, and a Paul W.S. Anderson of Mortal Kombat fame was hired to replace them, thus giving us a bunch of movies featuring a character with psychic powers. Alright guys, so let's close out with my personal thoughts on this game. I actually did get to play this back in about 1998, 1999. I actually did get to enjoy the rare Sega Saturn version, which not many people got to play as the Sega Saturn was a very, very unpopular 
and not very well sold system. Uh, I played a little bit of horror games before this. Things such as Splatterhouse, Friday the 13th on the NES, even Haunted House on the Atari. This is actually the first time I'd ever played a game that really made me feel scared and terrified. This has since come to be one of my most favorite game series out there, up there with Final Fantasy, even The Legend of Zelda. Would I recommend this game to y'all? I would say yes and no. Yes, play this game. I would recommend it for any horror fan. But don't play this original version. If you're going to try this game, I would recommend looking out for the 2004 remake for the GameCube that Capcom did several years later, which features new story elements, some updated graphics, which even by today's standards, absolutely phenomenal looking. That would be the one, and as well as some updated controls. It also features some updated control schemes for those of y'all who aren't big fans of the tank controls. So if you love horror games, this is definitely one that everybody that's a fan definitely experienced at one time in their life. So if you are interested in watching a video of this game instead of checking it out for yourselves, I will actually have a link down in the description that will take you to a YouTube video as I play through this game myself. For our next episode, I think we're going to be taking a look at Chilla's Art, The Convenience Store. So if you want to play along, go ahead and check that out. And send me some messages, let me know your thoughts and your feelings on the game. And maybe we'll read some of that stuff on the air on the next episode. After that, we'll probably be checking out, right now, my little short list. I think we're doing Amnesia the Bunker. Probably follow that up with maybe another small horror game. Haven't quite decided which one yet, so if you have any thoughts, please shoot those out there for me. I'd love to hear them. And probably following that with, I'm thinking, Scorn. Alright, so thanks for joining me, guys. I do appreciate y'all a lot. If you enjoyed your time, make sure you help out the channel, which can actually be very easy to do. Just subscribe, leave a like, or a good review if possible. And if you'd like to support the show a little bit more than that, there will be a link below. We can actually go donate a few dollars my way. That'll help support the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at JustNukeGaming. Find out when my latest episode drops. Or you can check out my YouTube channel at JustNukeGaming where you can see full playthroughs of many of the games that we're going to be talking about on the show. As well as an exclusive video version of the show will be available. Make sure you email me at pixelhorrorpodcast at gmail.com or leave comments below on the YouTube versions about what you think and what you want to see in the future. So until next time, guys, keep your flashlight handy, stay out of those dark corners, and try your best to survive until dawn.